I met this woman, Nancy, the company started to take off. I end up becoming a millionaire. Everything I pretty much wish for has materialized, good or bad. He was the can-do kid, can-do guy. You know, never a dull moment, um, always very upbeat, never ever depressed. I just thought you were very enthusiastic, uh, very passionate about what he was doing. I'm an enthusiastic person myself, a high-energy person. Um, I didn't think it was dangerous to anybody. You're an idiot, you know. How could this possibly be? You know, why would you even think of this? You're stupid, you know. And that was a norm for her. She never trusted me. I knew then I'm in big trouble. Big trouble, and I have to do something quickly. I'm Dr. Matt Winia. I'm Elaine Grant. Welcome to the pilot season of Hard Call our new podcast that follows the true stories of people confronting some of the most difficult decisions in healthcare, And where you become part of the story. At the end of each episode, we'll ask you to vote on what you would do if you were the one facing the tough choice. So we put this podcast together as a collaboration between people in medicine, in radio, and in theater. Today, we begin our pilot season with a story we're calling Derailed. So my name is... Wait. My name is Jeff Zinn, and I was born in Denver, Colorado, fourth generation. Jeff Zinn is 63, but he's handsome in a way that makes him seem younger. He's six foot four, imposing, charismatic, the kind of man who takes up all the air in the room. He has this quality where he's really focused on you when he's talking. He listens intently and then smiles when he talks. He looks like he's up to something. <laughs> yeah. Jeff, well, he's, he's cool. Right? He's fun to be around. He's smart. And you know what else he is? He is natural, a completely natural salesman. And I don't mean not the pushy kind. He's the kind of guy where you just talk to him for a bit and you want to buy whatever he's selling. Yes, you do. <laughs> and Jeff's story starts out with a childhood that can only be described as idyllic. I was born, as I was told, to an extremely handsome couple. Um, they called them the Barbie and Ken of Denver. But what I most remember about my childhood, that it was extremely special. Uh, you couldn't have asked for a better life, as I remembered it. We belonged to a country club uh, with all its benefits. We had water skiing, tennis, golf, clubhouse. I remember going to you know the shack and having hamburgers, all that I could eat. So I thought it was everything was perfect. And I remember specifically laying on the lawn of a male friend that I had just met um, in ninth when I was nine, so this would be like fifth or sixth grade, I got to go over his house and have a play date. And when I got out, I was feeling so good. And I laid on the lawn, I looked up at the heavens, and I said, thank you, God, you know, for not only being brought up in Denver, which I thought was the greatest place on earth, having great parents, and now, you know, being popular, it was like the first time I really understood what popular was. But things didn't stay that way. I was humming a tune on the way home, and I knocked on the door, and my mom asked me to sit down. And my father was there, and they said that they were going to get separated. And then from that, then on, everything seemed to take a different turn.
Jeff took his parents' separation hard. He struggled in high school. And eventually, Jeff dropped out of college. But even as a kid, Jeff was a natural salesman. I used to uh, go around selling pencils. Um, and then I, at the age of 15, sold uh, Britannica encyclopedias. Then I was selling fire alarms. It was called Vulcan Fire Alarms. Um, door-to-door, yeah, had a lot of door-to-door experience. After he dropped out of school, Jeff wasn't sure what to do. His dad was also floundering a bit and eventually moved to Dallas, where he began working for a women's clothing company. Jeff followed him and wound up living out of a suitcase, selling plus-sized women's clothing to small shops across the South. (laughs) This is not the glamorous side of the fashion industry. No. So that was a pretty good line. I had a pretty good, you know, monies in it, um, enough to support myself and get out of my dad's house. But I got my first real break with uh, Levi Strauss. And it was awesome. It was like the dream job. Uh, The only thing that was difficult is I had to move to Louisiana and stayed in Baton Rouge, very isolated. And I ended up doing very well. And after six months, moved to without a doubt, the craziest city I've ever lived in my life. That would be New Orleans, where Jeff lived pretty comfortably. It was the easiest job you can imagine once I got the, you know, gist of it. I learned how to play, uh, you know, those games on television, which was called Intellivision back then, which was like the first one. That's how I spent most of the day, getting high, hanging out by the pool in New Orleans. And, you know, it's really, it was an easy life except it was insane. Things in New Orleans seem to be going great for Jeff, though I'd say some of the stories he tells, let's, we'll play one to listen for yourself. But actually, I should say before we play this tape, this isn't really appropriate content for kids. It fed, I think, to all my vices at one time. Um, Certainly there was the alcohol, though I never was much of an alcoholic, but the drug use, the womanizing, uh, the uh, insane sexual uh, things that are going on down there. Uh, it It was like nothing I'd ever witnessed in my life. And if I, if you don't mind, I'll give you an example. I had a friend who was in the junior division And he was in Baton Rouge. He followed me when he got the job. And now he's ready to come to New Orleans, too. And he goes, well, how do you like it? So I said, well, why don't you come down and, you know, check it out? In fact, I have a party that we can go to. So he comes, and we end up going to a party that looked totally legitimate. Everyone looks professional. In fact, it was a doctor and his wife that hosted the party. And everybody's sitting around having a cocktail. Door knocks. And this was a Halloween party, by the way. So opens the door, and there is a guy who has a collar, leather collar around his neck, followed by a woman who's holding the chain and the strap who walks in. It must have been five seconds before the entire room turned into an orgy. And sheet was laid out onto the floor of the living room. People got, you know, undressed and involved. And I mean seconds. 
And I had never seen anything like this before. And that was really just the beginning of really seeing, hearing, witnessing, being part of a culture that I could not believe existed. You know, even to this day, I have to question whether it was true or not. So it, it finally came to a point where I either had two choices. I was going to die of living a hedonistic lifestyle, of eating their food, you know, the beignets, the crawfish etouffee, the uh, oysters, you know, poor boys, or settle down. During this party time of his life, Jeff got married. Then he got divorced. And then he decided he could really make a name for himself in women's fashion. Yeah, Jeff instinctively knew how to draw attention to himself. So as an example, this is the 80s, uh, before it was easy to make a video. But when Jeff finds a job to apply for in Women's Wear Daily, the big industry trade paper, he doesn't just send him a resume. He makes a video of himself and of his clothing line. And the guy fell in love with it and brought me up to New York and interviewed me. So Jeff gets a job in Manhattan with a company in the garment district called CM Shapes. He's on the verge of moving there, and we'll tell you what happened once he arrived after the break. We'd like to introduce you to an organization we're pretty fond of, one of our funders, Community First Foundation. For more than 40 years, Community First Foundation has been helping donors and nonprofits improve quality of life across Colorado's front range. You may have already heard of the foundation's signature program, coloradogives.org, which has changed the landscape of giving in Colorado. In 2016, coloradogives.org raised almost $34 million on Colorado Gives Day the largest online giving movement in the state. In 2014, they conducted a community listening tour, and the community identified mental wellness as one of their most important concerns. So their grants now are focused on early childhood mental wellness, improving the systems that support mental wellness, and changing the public perception of mental health and mental illness. And now, back to Derailed. Before the break, Jeff Zinn had just taken a prestigious job in the apparel industry in New York City, the worldwide hub of fashion, the Garment District. He was excited and confident, to say the least, something that he expressed to anybody who would listen. So I got on this chair at this restaurant in front of everyone. This is a big restaurant. And said, hi, everyone. My name is Jeff Zinn, and I'm moving to New York. And there are some really important people in this restaurant. Buyers for the May Company, a major department store conglomerate at the time. Before we get into what Jeff's time in the garment district is like, let's take a moment to get familiar with Jeff's worldview. It seems like a hybrid of Dale Carnegie and Oprah. Throw in some religious Judaism and a hefty dose of mysticism. So now I'm driving to New York, and this is one of the stories that still to this day not only baffles me, but uh, kind of defines my belief system. So on the way, I have, I believe in recording things, you know, the, the verbal recordings, because that's what salesmen do sometimes. You write your goals, but if you verbalize them, there are beliefs that 
you'd have a better chance of, you know, manifesting it. So I put into the phone that I wanted to get married to a Jewish woman this time in Manhattan. I wanted to learn how to act, and I wanted to get closer to my Judaism, to my belief. And the other one was I wanted to become a millionaire, take this company and become a millionaire. What ends up happening is these young guys, they're called um, the... uh, Lubavitches. These young Lubavitches come to the garment center and they help you put on tefillin. These are Jewish names. Uh, Tefillin is a religious wrap around the arms and a box on your head, which is a communication device, they believe, to God, direct communication. And there's this rabbi by the name of Rabbi Schneerson who was living in New York City who was thought to be at one point, especially by the Lubavitches, the coming of the Mashiach, which to the Jews means the coming of, you know, the new Messiah. So they actually took me to him to see him one day, and he always on Sabbath stands outside and he hands you a dollar, and then you give a dollar back to the rabbi standing to his right. His blue eyes were the most intense blue eyes I had ever seen in my life. And you asked for a wish. So I asked for these things to happen. After I did that, I met this woman, Nancy, my, my next wife. The company started to take off. And we end up, you know, I end up becoming a millionaire. It only gave me more belief that... Uh, at least I have a connection to the universe because everything I pretty much wished for or wanted to happen or vocalized or wrote down has materialized, good or bad. So Jeff's ambition, his outsized personality, and his natural ability as a salesman make him a perfect fit for the garment district. Like he said, at this point, he's a millionaire. Oh, I'm killing it. And he's beloved by his colleagues. You'll probably notice that the tape you're about to hear sounds a little strange, kind of distant. That'll be true anytime we play tape from Jeff's relatives and friends. He actually taped these interviews himself. My name is Juanita Fields. Juanita describes Jeff as off the chart, you know, never a dull moment, um, always very upbeat, never ever depressed. He was the can-do kid, can-do guy. And he's good at what he's doing, uh, really good. My name is uh, Larry Baum. When Jeff came to us, we were doing about $10 million. And uh, the business increased. After about three years, we got up to about $20 million. And then from that point on, it just kept growing and growing. We were one of the best products out there for large-sized women. We had specialty in prints, which was what we specialized in, and nobody did it better than we did. Jeff is at CM Shapes. He's selling millions of dollars worth of clothing. He's getting accolades throughout the industry. Lots of pats on the back from colleagues. But I'm working, you know, and not sleeping. I'm working, you know, 18 hours a day. I'm sleeping maybe two. I went to a physician to ask him, can I hold this pace up? 
am I physically able to handle this? What did she or he was, say? Yes, you're fine. And maybe he was. To some of his colleagues, his behavior seemed pretty normal for the garment industry. The garment industry as a whole had a stereotype that if you were not doing drugs, if you weren't um, somewhat manic in your personality, or if you know you you really couldn't survive because it was a very cutthroat go get them industry. He was very passionate about things. He he explode about his with his passion about something if he believed in it or he wanted to do it. And um, he was intense. The business was a business of stress, uh, ups and downs, peaks and valleys. It was never a business that went like this. It went like this, and then it went like this. Um, and uh, there was always those times where you know people flip out and fight, lose their temper, and I didn't think anything extraordinary of Jeff's behavior. Um, Jeff was a little different. He had a temper about him, um, which didn't come out till later. I saw it once in the beginning when Carol Mercado, the designer, left, and uh, she was leaving, and she started, something happened with Jeff, and I think he picked me up about four feet off the ground and put me against the wall. I see it a lot in the industry. There's a lot of people, some people more than others. Uh, Jeff was more intense than others, but there was, that's the type of personality that's, that you need to have in that crazy industry. If you know anything about our industry, I mean, it is, you have to be so passionate about the business. It's very difficult to get started. Your business kind of gets catapulted faster than you can ever imagine. And you have to handle it, you know, really grasp it. It has to be, you know, it's such a people-oriented business. And Jeff is so passionate. But there's another hint that something might be going wrong. Jeff and Nancy had had a whirlwind romance. Meeting her had been the fulfillment of the wish that he had said to Rabbi Schneerson. And he felt like the universe had given him his wife and by now his first kid. They should be happy. He's in his element at work, making money, loves his kids. But his relationship with Nancy is in trouble. After my wife got pregnant, which was very quick again, with Jesse uh, after maybe a year, um, we went to see a movie, which we lived on Bleecker Street. It was like two blocks away. When we get in the movie theater, all of a sudden she goes, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. Uh, why? Why? I just have to. Just get me out of here. So we got out of here and she was, you know, blue in the face, was deep breathing. She looked, you know, not well. So she goes, let's just go for a walk. And so she started to calm down. She goes, okay, I'm hungry. Let's get something to eat. So we go into a restaurant. Same thing. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. Well, after she went and got diagnosed with this, it turns out she was having panic attacks. And I never knew of it. You know, I never, I didn't know what was going on. Jeff says she would just go over the top criticizing him about his business plans. She'd say things like, You're an idiot. You know, how could this possibly be? You know, why would you even think of this? You're stupid. You know, and that was a norm for her. She never trusted me. And so, from his perspective, Nancy was unstable. Looking back at their marriage, 
which, by the way, lasted for several years beyond the time we're talking about now. Nancy, who is now Jeff's ex-wife, she talks about this time a lot differently. In the beginning, you thought, oh, well, just the class clown or his comedic side, but it became so much more than that. Um, it became not only an embarrassment, but out of control. Um, not what I would consider normal behavior. Did Jeff ever harm you or hit you or do anything no. that was... But so no, but... So say no, Jeff. No, Jeff never hit me. He never did anything physically harmful. But when you're so unstable and you're foaming at the mouth, I was scared. Not that you'd hit me, but who knows if you'd snap and go crazy. I lived in constant fear. He became absolutely what I would call insane, foaming at the mouth, talking so rapidly you couldn't even understand him. At first I thought it was a joke, but it wasn't. And I lived in terror. In addition to Nancy's claims that Jeff was acting, well, crazy, there was another problem, a huge one, money. It's not that he wasn't making enough of it. It was the way Jeff spent money that would become a tipping point for her. She thought he was enormously impulsive. He brings home a two-seater Mercedes, which he could ill afford, nor did I ever want, and that was it. Meanwhile, with things already really tense at home, Jeff gets an opportunity to start a new division for a major apparel company, his own label. He calls it Rebecca Jones. And the name came from me, um, which was the statement that was on Sex in the City, where the doctor looks at the woman and says, what do you want to call your vagina? And she says, Rebecca. So that's where the name came from, actually. And Jones, you know, Jones is a popular clothing line, plus Jones is also has a sexual connotation to it. So Rebecca Jones. So I started Rebecca Jones, which was the name of the company, from scratch. You know, I had to get the, the, the designer who I already knew from CM Shapes. I had to create a whole line, you know, from nothing. I was... 47, 47. At 47, here I am starting over and loving it. I was focused, and we put together a line, and we were getting good reactions. So I knew I had something, but these people are getting impatient. And I heard rumors. Now, I started in October, and I had heard rumors that if I didn't have orders by January's market week, they were going to fire me. So I'm still doing pot at this time, and I smoke a joint with one of my friends. And I say to myself, wait a minute, I'm in a lose-lose situation here. If I don't get the orders, I'm going to be fired and have a bad rep with the marketplace. And if I do get the orders, I hate these people. You know, I got, what am I going to do? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy the company. To 
launch his newly acquired line, Jeff has some pretty crazy ideas. He plans a fashion show, a gala event designed to attract the very influential fashion industry trade press. At that event, he makes a grand gesture, one intended to get him and his new company noticed. Uh, when Jeff donated $100,000 to a charity or something, I thought he was out of his mind. Uh, that was probably the stupidest thing. One of them that he did was taking $100,000 and giving it to a charity, thinking that what goes around comes around and it's going to come back to him because you don't give what you don't have. You needed the money for the business. You needed the money to do things, to live on. And when he gave away 100000 it was insane. I didn't even believe he gave it away, but I guess he did. I hope he was able to write it off, but... I don't think he made any money that year. Nancy is not happy. Oh, she was against it from the beginning. She thought I was insane right from the start. And most people did. But Jeff didn't. He thought he was a brilliant success. Despite the tensions at home, he is supremely confident. He's happy. He's really, really happy. In fact, he gets the idea that the launch of Rebecca Jones would make for a great reality TV show. So he hires a film crew to follow him around and document the rise of his new company. And that's why we have so much tape from Jeff's life. And of course, there's the tape Jeff got himself. Here's another one of Jeff's former colleagues talking to Jeff about what he was like at that time. So my name is Larry Zarsky, or as people like to call me, Larry Z. Well, in my perception, I, frankly, I, I, I didn't think anything was wrong with you. I just thought you were very enthusiastic, uh, very passionate about what he was doing. I'm an enthusiastic person myself, a high-energy person. Uh, I didn't think it was dangerous to anybody, other than uh, apparently he was, he was spending too much money, but healthy people spend too much money. Because he was always a little, uh, a little crazy. I like that about him. That's why we always had fun together. Here's a clip of Jeff and Larry Zarsky hanging out in an office during the Rebecca Jones days. Larry's doing yoga and breathing exercises while Jeff looks on in admiration. That is fucking incredible. Look at the strength of this man at 59 fucking years old. Larry, I want to know about you. Who are you? You tell. How Wasn't that good? Wasn't that good? Larry. Unbelievable. Larry. I can't fucking believe I did it myself! We'll get back to Jeff's story and hear about his big event to launch Rebecca Jones in a second. But first, a quick break. And now I'd like to thank one of our generous funders, the Colorado Health Foundation. The foundation is singularly focused on helping Coloradans live their healthiest lives by advancing opportunities to pursue good health and achieve health equity through grant making, policy and advocacy, strategic private investments, and convening to drive change. For more information, please visit www.coloradohealth.org. And now, back to our story. As we said before the break, to launch his new clothing line, Rebecca Jones, 
Jeff makes plans to stage a gala, and during this gala, he announces his intention to give $100,000 to charities. All of this is to create buzz for his new company. Those plans would cause a lot of controversy amongst his friends and family, but he manages to put the fashion show together, and ultimately he feels that it's a smashing success. Oh, it was unbelievable. But I had invited the press. People that are dignitaries were there. I invited my relatives. I flew them in so I could fill the seats. And I filled some of my best friends from Denver came as 50 well. 50 people, 1,000 people, what kind I'd of? I'd say about 80. Oh, so this is not massive. Oh, no. Didn't have to be. Just had to fill so when that camera was shooting the stage, it appeared that there were a lot of people. Then I shot after the film, so what did you think, you know? And they would say, you know, unbelievable. And, you know, and so it was all part of this five minute, created the five minute hype. So in, in light of the stress it placed on his marriage, we asked Jeff why he felt the need to give away $100,000. Well, there was two motivations. There was one was um, that I wanted to bring press. And actually someone um, who was a friend of mine suggested it, who was very religious. And I said, oh, that sounds like a great idea. And then, the, and then the second was is the is the adage that whatever you give away you'll get tenfold back. So that's why this was a great idea. This this did work. Um, so I went to a PAL function where I gave the twenty five thousand dollars to of the monies I gave, and I walked up to Donald Trump and I said, Mr. Trump, would you give away a hundred thousand dollars before he even started a company? And he goes, No. I wouldn't do that. So even he at that point thought it was a bad idea. And to this day, I think it worked incredibly. You know, I think it did get me exactly what I wanted. Now, maybe it didn't have to be 100. Maybe it could have been less. But in some ways, you know, it did bring incredible press. I mean, Women's Wear Daily did a whole page on me. Fashion Manuscript did two articles, pages, photographs. The word got out. So at this point, Jeff is on top of the world. The whole thing was so surreal, you know, just being this person who was so successful, you know, in this, there's nothing like it. It feels superhuman. But remember his wife, Nancy. She's getting increasingly upset, scared, angry. I realized he was spending money he didn't have. He borrowed an enormous amount of money from my father. Um, I begged my father not to give him the money. And my father, being a wonderful human being, gave it to him, which was a terrible, terrible mistake. He also um, took our entire retirement fund and forced me to sign it away towards Rebecca Jones. And... I knew then I'm in big trouble, big trouble, and I have to do something quickly. So I researched it, and I found the best doctor in the city, a psychiatrist that specialized in mental illness. I explained the situation to her. She said, you are in great danger. You must have him committed immediately. And I said, but Jeff's my husband. I can't do that. And she said, you must. It was then I knew what I had to do. I 
pretended to Jeff that I was taking him for marriage counseling, but that was not the truth. I was taking him to do two psychiatrists, and by the time I got to him in the city where he worked, he was out of control, beyond out of control. It was not even a person I recognized. I do vividly remember that I was extremely busy. I felt annoyed and agitated that I even had to do this while I was doing all the other things that I had to get done, getting a showroom together, all the things we've mentioned, operating a business. Why in the heck would I have to do this, of all things? So I walked into that room um, angry, you know, that I was even pulled away from my he my heaven. You know, I, I looked at that showroom and all the things I was doing as heaven. It was the most fun I've ever had. And they pulled me away from that. And to be with somebody that I really got to despise by this point, um, I felt nothing for her. And when I walked in that room, I was set up. And it was pretty calm. You know, my, my uh, ex was sitting next to the psychiatrist, and they offered me to sit across them on a couch. And then pretty quickly, she asked me, what's going on? So here's a short clip of the scene at the psychiatrist's office as it played out live on stage in the Hard Call Theater. Oh, sure, I'll tell you what's going on. First of all, I make women's clothing. I'm doing a film. I'm even building a building after me. And, you know, I do so much around here. I'm doing everything, and she does nothing. That is what's going on. And I know kickboxing. I've been taking it. Which, at that point, I demonstrated a full circle kick. And then I pointed my finger at my ex and strongly said, and she does nothing, quite extreme. You're like really angry, and that's what's going on. And then I turned around, I sat on the couch, and I put my arms full stretched, looked at my wife with glaring eyes, looked at her, was expecting, like I said, to say, you're right, Jeff, I can see, you know. Jeff's perspective, well, it wasn't shared. And he blames that on the fact that his own sister had talked to the psychiatrist beforehand, and his sister was really worried about Jeff's behavior and felt he needed to be hospitalized. So Jeff wound up feeling like the psychiatrist wasn't at all unbiased. Primed would be the right word. So at this point, the psychiatrist, she has a quick decision to make. Nancy has told her that Jeff is acting out. He's volatile. His decisions to her make no sense. And so Nancy thinks... He needs to be hospitalized. But Nancy is not a psychiatrist. And frankly, from the psychiatrist's point of view, Nancy's acting a little derailed herself. Then Jeff arrives in her office, meeting her for the first time. Under false pretenses, mind you. And he's sounding a lot like what we just heard from Hardcore Theater. Yeah, or if you'd like to hear a tape from that time period, we have clips of this. Here's a clip of what he actually sounded like at that time. This thing is bigger than me. This thing isn't about me anymore. This thing is about justice. This thing is about doing the right thing. This thing is about the right thing, period. It's not about Jeff Zinn. It's not about Judaism. It's not about anything. It's about right. It's about what the power of one and the power of God can do. And I got to tell you something. I'm the perfect man for that job because everybody's tried to stop me. 
I've had more, I've lived in more cities, I've talked to more people than almost anybody does in a lifetime. And I'm only 47 years old, I got the best years ahead of me. And all I'm going to do is I'm going to preach the truth. And no one can stop me. So, is Jeff dangerous? Does he need to be hospitalized against his will? To get some perspective on what goes into making this kind of a decision, we decided to talk to an expert. Hi, my name is Dinah Miller. I'm a psychiatrist in Baltimore. Um, I'm an outpatient psychiatrist, mostly in private practice, and I'm on faculty at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine as an instructor in psychiatry. She's also recently written a book along with one of her colleagues, Dr. Annette Hansen. It's called Committed, the Battle Over Involuntary Psychiatric Care. She chose that subtitle because the book is quite literally about the battle, that there are groups who are very much wanting it to be easier legislatively and and logistically to make somebody who is ill get help. There are other groups who are very much against this, um, civil rights groups, patient advocacy groups, um, as opposed to mental health advocacy groups, which which tend to be more um, often the parents of people with with psychiatric illness who are watching their children decline. Miller and Hansen's book starts off by following the true stories of two patients who have been involuntarily hospitalized for mental health issues. One had a positive experience and one had a negative one. And then we talk about the different groups who are invested in it. And from there, we go through the process of... um, you know, we start off with getting somebody into the hospital, and I spent a day riding around in a police car with a, um, a crisis intervention police officer. So we talk a lot about crisis intervention teams. Um, I spent a fair amount of time in mental health court. I shadowed a judge. And so each chapter focuses on a person um, and their role in this big system. Miller says that the decision-making process that happens before an involuntary hospitalization, it's complicated. In every state, there there are different criteria for what you can do to forcibly hospitalize somebody. In many states, it's a danger to self or others, and it means a physical danger. And how imminent it is sort of depends on both the state's law and the person who's evaluating them, how, how dangerous they want them to be in order to feel comfortable putting them in the hospital. In other states, the question is one of gravely disabled. So I don't not aware of anyone who would think that spending money is reason to force somebody into a hospital if they're not dangerous. Now, you mentioned that he's volatile. And so once you start screaming or throwing things or shoving people, that's a whole different story. And it should be a very difficult decision. After all, we're really talking here about the psychiatrist locking someone up against their will. That's a tremendous power for a doctor to hold and to use. Right. And historically, there are some very well-known instances where that power has been abused. I'm recalling that Soviet-era psychiatrists locked up political dissidents in hospitals. Basically, they said they were crazy for arguing against the regime. Yeah, and there are many other examples, too. The, the legal rationale for giving doctors this power is to protect the community from someone who is dangerous or to protect the patient from hurting him or herself. But that's it, right? You aren't supposed to lock someone up just because he's arguing a lot with his wife. So there's a real question here about what counts as being dangerous. Does spending a lot of money that you don't really have count as being dangerous? Because if so, he's already done that. 
But if not, and if he hasn't threatened to physically hurt anyone, is he dangerous on the basis of his other behaviors? The fact that he's not sleeping, that he's being belligerent, he has grandiose thoughts, his rapid speech. Right. So is now a good time to say that these are all important criteria for the diagnosis of mania? I guess so, since the psychiatrist would certainly know them, and she's the one facing this decision. So it's only fair for us to let everyone in on the diagnosis. We're asking you all to vote on what to do next. So yes, if you were wondering, or even if you weren't, you should know his behavior seems to meet the medical criteria for a diagnosis of mania. And we'll have a lot more to say about that in the next episode. But the question for this episode, the question facing this psychiatrist right now, does his apparent mania mean he needs to be hospitalized against his will? Does it make him dangerous? And the broader question I'd like to ask is, mania or not, how good are psychiatrists at knowing who's really dangerous and who's just blowing off steam? Well, so the answer to that question is going to be both disappointing and not very helpful. Um, It's disappointing because, number one, there just aren't a lot of good studies about this. There are a few, and they're old, but they all suggest that doctors, we actually aren't very good at this. Uh, For example, there was one study published in JAMA back in the 1990s. Researchers followed 357 people who were released from an emergency room, but they asked the psychiatrist who saw them whether they thought the patient would commit an act of violence in the next six months. So on the one hand, 53% of the patients that psychiatrists thought might commit violence actually did commit an act of violence in the next six months. The problem is, so did 36% of the patients that the psychiatrist predicted would not be violent. So that's disappointing. It means we're just not very good at predicting dangerousness. And then it's not very helpful in this case because... Even if we're not very good at it, we still have to do it. I mean, there's not someone else who's better at this. So for now, for this particular decision, we're stuck with what the psychiatrist knows and what she decides. Okay. So let's summarize what she knows as she makes this decision. You bet. So here's my list of what the psychiatrist knows at this point. And this is the information she is going to use to make this decision. First, Jeff is speaking really quickly. He's got some grandiose ideas, but he's also a success story in his business where grandiose thinking can be rewarding. And she also knows that she's been told by Jeff's wife that he's a danger to the family because he's spending so much money. But he hasn't caused any physical harm to anybody, and he hasn't threatened to do so either. Yeah, on the other hand... He is demonstrating kickboxing in the psychiatrist's office, and that, I mean, that could seem aggressive. Yes, it could. We also know, though, that he's only been in the psychiatrist's office for a couple of minutes, but he's not likely to stay much longer, so she has to make a quick decision. Also, I want to point out something that might not be obvious to our listeners. This is a psychiatrist in private practice in Manhattan. And I don't mean to stereotype here, but the reality is she doesn't work in a hospital and her services are expensive, which means it's not likely she's treated a lot of people who have mental illness severe enough to warrant involuntary hospitalization. So she doesn't have to make this kind of decision very often. And Jeff says when he talks about this now, years later, that she didn't really ask him any questions. 
According to him, through, through the whole visit, she just watched calmly and listened to him rant and rail about his wife. Which, by the way, is what he thought he was there to do, remember? He thought this was marriage counseling. Right. And maybe she didn't ask many questions because he was talking nonstop. Looking at everything we know now, I think it's possible she might not have been able to get a word in edgewise. We don't have tape of the actual visit, so we'll never know for sure. True. And yet, as Dr. Miller says, it is important for the psychiatrist to explore other options before resorting to involuntary hospitalization if she can. It's a a move of last resort. Nobody wants to involuntarily put somebody in a hospital who doesn't want to be there. There are simply cases where you don't really have an option. Um, My belief is that you need to do what's in the best interest of the patient. And it's never in your patient's best interest to go out and kill somebody or to kill themselves. I guess I believe that, uh, that a little more effort should be made, that doctors in some cases say, are you dangerous? And he says, no. And they say, okay, goodbye. Um, they don't try. We should think that you might traumatize somebody by doing this. So if you can avoid it by getting them to accept care voluntarily, which takes more effort, it means putting more time in, it means having a relationship with a patient, it means engaging with them, it means listening to them, and it means meeting them at their level sometimes. You know, sometimes you address with somebody not, gee, you have to admit that you have an illness, but gee, you know, you're not able to sleep and you're really anxious, and maybe we can help you with that and offer you some respite. So here's this episode's hard call. If you were the psychiatrist at this point, would you have him committed to a psychiatric hospital or not? What would you do? Visit our website, hardcallshow.org. Vote yes if you would have him involuntarily committed and no if you wouldn't. And that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. Hard Call is a production of the University of Colorado Center for Bioethics and Humanities. The Hard Call production team includes me, Dr. Matt Winia, Elaine Grant, our senior producer, and associate producer, Tyler Hill. And a whole raft of characters who helped us with the medical facts and helped us to produce Hard Call Theater, including psychiatrist and brave actor Abraham Nussbaum and Aurora Fox Theater executive producer Charles Packard. Thanks also to our funders for the Derailed series, the Colorado Health Foundation and Community First Foundation. Remember, to weigh in with your opinion on this Hard Call Show, visit our website, hardcallshow.org. Also, like us on Facebook and subscribe to us on Twitter, at Hard Call Show. I think you don't say subscribe to us on Twitter. You say follow us yes, on Yes, yeah. <laughs> you subscribe to us on iTunes. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter. And like us on Facebook. <laughs> Next time on Hard Call. Come and catch me. You can't catch me. Nobody can keep up with me. You hear me? I can talk faster than anybody I know. I got the jive. I got the mive. I got the dive. We're getting ready to do this thing now. We even got a recap. We ain't going to need no recap. We're going to vote one time. And you know who's going to win? Jeff Zinn. <laughs>